Hello, pod pals. Welcome back to Best Girl Grip, the podcast that navigates the film industry through the lens of the women doing just that. I am your host, Nicole Davis. This week, my guest is Jaisha Patel, an award-winning British filmmaker who works at the intersection of cinematic film and VR. Her first short film, A Paradise, premiered at the Berlinale in 2014 and was nominated for over 37 international awards. In 2017, she directed Notes to My Father, an award-winning VR experience commissioned by Oculus. The film launched at Oculus House during the Sundance Film Festival before premiering at South by Southwest and Locarno. It won the UN Women's Global Voices Award for Best 360 VR Film and it was shown to policy advisors fighting gender violence at the World Economic Forum's India Summit. In May, Jaisha finished a three-year spell as an artist-in-residence at London's Somerset House where she started to develop her next VR project after the fire and in September she was named a Screen Daily Star of Tomorrow. I was thrilled to welcome Jaisha to the podcast, not least because VR is completely uncharted territory for Best Girl Grip. We talk about her incredibly fascinating journey into the film industry, how she utilises VR to tell personal, poignant and painful stories, how she stays creatively centred and what her experience has been like operating within both the tech and film industries. In other news, I feel like we breathed a collective sigh of relief at the weekend with the eventual update that Joe Biden has been elected as the next president of the United States. For some context, this interview was recorded just before that on Friday and I felt quite tense and tired and then I just had this wonderful experience of talking with Jaisha and even before the news broke, it made me feel hopeful and curious and connected. So thank you to Jaisha for her time and wisdom. I hope as ever you get as much from it as I do. This is episode 69 of Best Girl Grip. I always like to kick off is getting a sense of kind of how you came into the film industry and whether you went to university and if you did what you studied there. Sure Uh, so I actually kind of um, studied economics like very kind of different but I think I kind of you know like whenever I would go traveling like I took a gap year I went like very remote into kind of different communities and kind of get got access to kind of small stories that felt very different to how I was seeing the kind of conventional tv media in terms of documentary represent these type of people kind of back home so there was kind of this dissonance between what I was seeing in reality or my own truth and what was presented to me as a truth. Um, but I never really, you know, it was kind of just this burning thing that I was like, maybe, but I just didn't see a path. You know, I didn't know anybody that had ever gone into film. And then it was, I think, in my second year of uni, I just went on a trip to Berlin with a friend. It was like when Ryanair did those like really cheap 20 cents a pound return. <laughs> a thing called the Berlin Film Festival. So my friend was like, should we just go and check it out? I was like, sure. And I remember watching a film and it was called Gandu, which means like ridiculous or like asshole in in, in Gujarati. Um, and it was really bold and experimental. And I didn't know that film could be like that. And I remember turning to my friend and, you know, asking her like, do you think I can be a filmmaker? And it was a flip between making jewellery or being a filmmaker. And she was like, well, I don't think you've got the patience to be a jewellery designer. So maybe (laughs) film could be a good shout. And literally three years after that, I had my first short film screen at the Berlin Film Festival. So 
yeah, it, it's a special place because it, you know, for many reasons. And from that moment, I, it, it was really kind of a light bulb kind of moment of like, okay, how do I figure out how to make films? And I just had graduated, uh, you know, in the midst of the recession. And so I couldn't really afford to be a runner um, and not get paid. And I was like, okay, think about it, Jay. Like, how do you? And I knew that I could speak languages. And so I started to look for jobs in like France and Spain because I thought that there would be less competition. And um, a thing called like transmedia was coming up and it was niche. And I was like, okay, well, maybe I can kind of get my foot into that. I basically got a job as a distribution assistant for international kind of sales in in France and Paris. So that was my first job. And through that, I applied to the Cuban film school. And again, it was just like a curiosity thing because I spoke languages. And I was like, where would it be really hard to make a film? And I just typed in Cuba because I was like, obviously, <laughs> for lots of reasons. And then a film school came up. And this film school was for people from largely the continents of Africa, Asia and Latin America who perhaps had the talent, but not the resources for like, you know, a US film school. I also found out that it was really competitive to get into. And obviously, as a young person, I was like, I need to get into that film school. And so I went through this process whilst I was still in, in France. I remember kind of going to Madrid and taking an exam with like you know 500 people and I think only like 20 of us would, would get in and it was a six-hour exam in Spanish and then like a portfolio that you had to do and I had some photography and a short film that I made and it was such a beautiful experience because I was like you know it wasn't about the craft it was like how do you see the world and I'm like I've shown them how I see the world and if they accept me, it's because they can see me, <laughs> you know, and it was a nice moment to surrender. And it's like, if they don't, I've given everything of myself and I can't give more. And yeah, I got in and um, that's really kind of where I learned to make films. And it was a place where there was no internet for three years. But what it was, was a really, really rigorous kind of practical and very spiritual <laughs> in many ways experience because you're kind of in a on a farm on an island where you can't escape with no internet where you're literally just living and breathing film with all of these people from very different backgrounds or international you know Burkina Faso Vietnam like lots of different countries in Latin America so you come from very different backgrounds and you kind of have to collaborate and work and understand that you know my sense of logic is very different to somebody from Cuba's sense of logic and so you're 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 forced to kind of expand your empathy which is a really important tool for making films, I guess. I think that's like a really interesting point as well that you flagged that the application process was more about kind of exploring your voice and what you wanted to say, because the craft is always something that you can kind of learn. They're the skills that can be taught, whereas, yeah, that perspective and that voice is something that kind of has to be innate. And I'm wondering if you knew at that early stage the kinds of films that you wanted to, to make and the kind of stories that you wanted to tell. Yeah, that's a really good, interesting one. I mean, I think, you know, in terms of my identity, I, I'm a, very much a hybrid of, you know, Indian, but from East African parents um, and British. And so I've always kind of straddled these very arbitrary lines of being able to see multiple or simultaneous kind of realities at once, which kind of expands your imagination naturally, because you need to have that type of imagination to survive these multiple worlds, right? And so I always kind of growing up had lots of stories in the house because, you know, my parents kind of, you know, my dad or father's side is kind of refugees and all of this stuff. And because I lived in an extended family as well, like 
lots of people would be coming in and out of the house and they'd always have stories. And I think as I was growing older, like just kind of being, you know, a woman and seeing, I think it was, it was that thing of kind of not the the information I was getting about how I should be seeing myself from the media that I had access to, uh, be it blockbusters or documentary were very different to what my gut was telling me about who I was or in turn who anyone was. And so that dissonance or, or kind of constant conflict, I guess, is still what drives me now but also the seed that I saw potential in. And then you were making short films um, at the film school and then I'm wondering you know what happened after you graduated what was your first opportunity as a director kind of how did you start making films as a career? That's interesting I think actually it started probably in that film school so we were you know there was this exercise in the second year where the eight documentary directors were kind of just dropped off to the east of the island, which is a very rural part. And they're like, you've got a month to come back with a story. So you're just kind of dropped in the middle of nowhere. And I remember every year they would kind of make the same story about this old man that was really lonely in this very isolated place. And I was like, I'm definitely not going to do that. And I found this story, which became a paradise about a couple grieving the, the, the loss of their young son to suicide. But then I found out that it was a community thing, that there were lots of children where this was happening. And not only that, that because there was no kind of public health system in place to kind of allow these parents to deal with these children to deal with the system's problems, that there was a religion that people were believing in that uh, invisible spirits were killing their children. And so this was the thing that was kind of really helping them deal or make sense of this world. I remember like everybody went back for their summer holidays and I was like, A, I have a responsibility to these people that have shared their life with to make it, to honor them (laughs) as much as I can. So I stayed the whole of the summer by myself in this edit room. And yeah, and then I thought about Berlin and I'm like, there's something about this that feels like how I felt when I saw that other film. And obviously there's no internet, so you can't just, you know, apply. And luckily um, a teacher came, you know, after the summer and I was like, listen, can you just get somebody in your your office when you go back to Spain to just, you know, do this application for me? And she was like, yeah, sure. And I, I didn't really know her. So I was like, mate, I hope she's done it. And thankfully she did. And it got through to Berlin. And so to be in that space from this tiny school to one of the biggest festivals, um, that really helped me to kind of see how an industry works and also kind of, yeah, kind of get a bit of more notice to then make another film. And so then I, yeah, found this story in India after kind of graduating. It was to do with violence against women in India. Um, and I pitched it as my first kind of professional thing at this uh, film festival in Camden, Maine. And they kind of, you know, picked it. So they flew me over um, and then I won that commission Um, and then I got to make it for AJ plus. I mean, that throws up a lot of questions about kind of process. Um, the first one, I guess I want to ask, you know, this idea that you, you just embedded yourself in this community, uh, in Cuba and you, you stayed in the edit room and your stories are quite heavy. They deal with, um, often quite sad and devastating topics. And particularly when you're so embedded in it, I'm wondering how you navigate that sort of, that sense of responsibility to your subjects and, and to the weightiness of the stories that you're telling. Is that something that you perhaps struggle with or that you think about a lot? Yeah, I think it's something that I've increasingly thought about more later on because a lot of the time, sometimes, you know, there can be, I mean, a paradise wasn't personal in any way but there's certain things of you know themes that kind of draw you to something I only 
like to do stories that I feel like I'm equipped to tell or like I have something in me that can make that story. But yeah, it's something that I'm still probably learning to do. Like, you know, it's incredible. Like even now, you know, I'm going through this development process um, and I'm like, okay, I'm just going to do like it as a, as a commission. Like I'm not going to put myself into it. And obviously like a month later and you're just like, oh my God, <laughs> I'm in it. <laughs> it's not sustainable. But I think it's trusting your gut. You know, I think it's really important for me to create a team around me that is also qualified to be telling that story. So with a paradise, you know, we were in partners, but it was, I knew that in order to be able to tell kind of a story that really went deep, I had to pair up with like a Cuban woman and she was a black woman. So it's like two women of color. Um, and that kind of changes certain dynamics as well when you're kind of going into these kind of largely black and brown communities. So it's building trust, not only between me and my subject, but also with my team. And I think I also trust it where it feels like my ability to see them is also kind of in relation to their ability to see me. So it's not a one-way thing of like subject and object. We're both looking at each other. Part of the exciting part of this interview for me is that you're a VR filmmaker, which is a world that I think is new to everybody. You know, it still feels like such fledgling technology. And so I'm wondering at what point you encountered VR and what piqued your interest? I remember, so I was in India kind of working and then I, I came back to Sheffield Docfest to this market and I kept on getting told by these TV execs you know well your stories are really far away and unless you've got kind of a western angle into this story they're not essentially relevant <laughs> to a UK audience and I remember thinking it's so sad that you know like that we need that kind of conduit like we can't just kind of go into that world or put ourselves into that space rather than it coming to us and I remember this this um, guy called Gabo Aurora who'd been doing incredible work with the UN he was the creative director of the UN doing VR at the time kind of sat um, opposite me um, at this table at a party and he just put a headset on me and I saw one of his his works Clouds Over Cedra that he'd created and I was like okay wow this is how you can get an audience to come to the reality rather than you know because you're literally just transported and so I was like there's so much potential here but obviously it was it was 2015. And then I think a year later or 18 months later, I saw Oculus Facebook's uh, VR studio. He, We became Facebook friends and I saw that he had inspired them to create this huge program um, to get kind of filmmakers from around the world to create, you know, work in VR. And I was like, oh my God, I have to apply to this uh, program um, because they give you kind of all the resources to be able to do it. And obviously VR is very expensive. And I basically just like hustled <laughs> um he was in London at the time for a film festival some work and so I was like I have to meet you and he was just like he was just like weirdo and I was just so persistent and then he was like okay you can come and hang out with my friends like for dinner and I can give you like tips and literally the application was in at 8 a.m the next morning and I was with them until midnight and I remember I just had a couple of glasses of wine and I'm going back on the tube and I'm like, I need to give everything to this right now. So I literally stayed up all night for those eight hours and just gave my heart to the application. And I think it's over a thousand people had applied and 10, 10 of us got chosen. And so it was a really exciting time to be able to kind of experiment and not be told, well, you can't do this, even though people did <laughs> still. 
That's incredible. Wow. I mean, congratulations on that as well, because that's a, that's a huge accomplishment. You brought up the topic of immersiveness and putting people in these stories as opposed to bringing it to them. And one of the beautiful things, I mean, I've been to a couple of festivals where I've been lucky enough to experience VR films and there is just this other quality of surroundedness that you just don't get in kind of um, traditional cinema. And I'm wondering if you could perhaps talk about the other benefits or advantages to this kind of storytelling that kind of you've mined and that you've found that's a really great question. I think it's actually made me a better flat filmmaker, <laughs> if that makes sense. Just because in VR, I think instead of lengthy plot points, you have to really distill your information and working poetically is actually more profound, right? So you're editing more tonally, you know, creating kind of scapes that are much more, yeah, poetic and metaphorical and symbolic to really enable that world to kind of resonate. And so that really helps you kind of think about what is the essential details that somebody needs for this story and and really what is the emotional journey because that's going to be far more important to you. And so that really requires you to really dig into the unspoken aspects of storytelling actually or within that story arc or narrative arc, if that makes sense. So I think it's that, the, the ability to kind of poeticize <laughs> if that makes sense um to really maximize how you can use poetry in filmmaking and detail i think you know now even when i'm writing say a documentary kind of proposal or a fiction proposal because you're not just focused on what you're seeing on screen on like one thing in front of you you're aware of all of these sounds and details behind and stuff you can also write in a really visceral way Hmm. The way I would like visualize it is that you're almost writing off the margins of the page as opposed to in that kind of linear, like in the, yeah, because you, you might be controlling what's going on and someone's kind of in front of them, but you can kind of, yeah, lure them to perhaps what's going on behind them as well. That's, yeah, that's really interesting. Back on the topic of notes to my father, which I think it's credited as being the first live action 360 degree documentary. (laughs) Whatever that means. (laughs) Yeah, well, I mean, what does it mean? And, and how, how did you how did you pull that off? You know, what was the development process for that film? I mean, it was, that was the one that you um, got onto the program, the Oculus program, right, to, to do. So then, yeah, talk me just through creating that and, you know, what, where you begin and how that even came to be. Um, so the parameters of the program were that you were kind of, you know, paired with a uh, an NGO and you had to make a piece that wasn't a PSA or like, you know, a charity film, but very much an authored piece of work but that could help that charity. And so the charity I was working with, My Choices Foundation, work with like the prevention of trafficking in India. And what their kind of research had found is that fathers are often complicit. And that's like a different, you know, it's a a specific thing to sex trafficking in India, Um, not necessarily because they're all just evil, but because, you know, traffickers uh, use fathers as a way to bribe will take you out of poverty your child out of poverty all of that and so I thought that was a really interesting angle you know that the relationship between a daughter and a father who has perhaps been complicit you know how does that work and I didn't want to do it in a sensationalist way because I think the thing with with VR another thing is that being gentle actually pays a lot more than being very sensational like if I put a viewer you know and in, in the midst of a brothel, how can you comprehend that reality, right? It's just too much. It's in your face. It doesn't resonate in your body. And so I found this I- incredible woman because, through the NGO um, called Rama Devi. And literally because we didn't have it, you know, we had a structure and, it, it, you know, it had to be ready for, for Sundance and all of this stuff. It literally, I got off the plane 
from England to Hyderabad, we drove for like six hours. And then I interviewed different people. And as soon as she and her father, we, we interviewed them separately, but there was just something about her and her eyes and her vibrancy, but also her father and like, you could sense the guilt, but you could also sense the love between them. And you could sense that there was this unspokenness about what she had gone through that they'd never shared. And, you know, immediately as a director, you're like, okay, there's clearly something there. And so I, I spoke to her and obviously it, it's such a delicate thing. I also, her best friend had been a trafficking survivor. So I invited her on to when we were filming to make her feel comfortable in the interviewing process. So it wasn't just me kind of being like, what's happened to you? You know, it was a conversation between three women. And what was really beautiful actually was obviously we speak a different, you know, she speaks Telugu. I can't speak that language. And so we had the cook of kind of the film shoot um, come and translate for us. And she came and sat down with her and then also shared her story. And so it was all of these women kind of sharing their stories of, of violence in a way that felt uh, safe, I think, and, and one of solidarity. And so that really helped build trust. Um, and she essentially wrote a letter through the, the film to her father about all the things she wanted to tell him that she couldn't to his face. And that's why it's called Notes of My Father. And so, yeah, that was kind of the experience and kind of going back to, you know, the brothel thing. I was like, well, how do you enable somebody that hasn't gone through that experience to viscerally feel what it's like? You can never kind of, you know, I can't imitate or that would be insensitive, but to, to get an understanding of some of the things she may have gone through. And I thought, well, it, it's essentially this extreme form of objectification. And so I try to find everyday situations in her life that could kind of relate to that and one of them was being in a, a train carriage in India um, where you could perhaps be the only woman and all of these men are looking at you and so one of the scenes is literally just all of these men looking and everywhere you look you know there's just these men and you can hear like belts like you know not unbuckling but like shifting and underneath it or it's her voiceover saying sometimes I would pretend to be dead to numb the pain just after you found out she was taken to a brothel. And so you kind of get a very visceral understanding of kind of a, an extreme sense of objectification. And it feels, yeah, it feels very scary because your your initial reaction as a, a participant in that is like, where's the nearest woman? Or like, where's the safety space, right? But it's gentle enough that it's not kind of, here's a brothel and this is what's happening. And then I guess the, the, the main thing was that the voiceover that she does or that her story is in Telugu. And um, because there was also like a Western audience that needed to kind of access it, we needed to also have, you know, an English VO. And so there was all of these kind of uh, talks, you know, people wanted me to do like a Bollywood actress or South Asian. And I was like, no, <laughs> just because it was such a different tone to, to what Ramadevi had shared with me. And I remember like everyone was like, you know, well, you're in the edit now. You've got like 24 hours to find somebody. And I remember seeing this woman at the South Bank. It was a play called Nirpaya. And there was these all these testimonies of women um, from India that had gone through some violence. And I remember an acid attack survivor called Sneha Jawale. And I don't remember, like, I remember parts of her story, but more I just remember the inflection of emotion in her voice. So I found her, I contacted her, and I said, listen, this is the situation and this is the story. Would you you know, be willing to do this. And she's like, you know, I'm really sorry, but I don't speak English like that well. And I was like, I don't care how well you speak English. I, I care about the emotion and your ability to be able to understand that. And she thought about it and she's like, give me a week because I want to say Ramadevi's letter to my own father too. 
And she gave it everything to the, to the point that because we were in different countries, I was on Skype directing her. And the technician guy in Hyderabad in the recording studio rang me up after and being like, you know, I have lots of people coming in to do voiceover, but this has really been like a heartwarming one. So thank you for the experience. So it was, it was things like that. And then I guess with my, I have a really beautiful relationship with my music composer for that, Joe Patterson. And, you know, when I was, before she came on board, she was like, well, how do I, you know, like put myself into her shoes? And I was like, you can't put yourself into her shoes. <laughs> but what you can do is think about your own relationship with your father. And I want you to think about the times that you felt love with him, like the, the grief or betrayal, anything. And I just want you to have a phone call with him. You don't have to share any of that information with me or anybody else. But I just want you to have that conversation. And after you kind of drop the line or whatever, write your music. And that's exactly what she did. And um, it was beautiful. Yeah, it's a stunning score. I remember it well. And then from a kind of a more technical perspective with your cinematographer, how are you actually staging the shots? Are you literally going around in a kind of 360 circle to capture everything that would then imitate that surroundedness? How does that element of it work? So it's basically like this thing that looks like E.T. And it's, you know, two kind of cameras in, in each kind of side so left right front and back and then one camera on top and one at the bottom and so it's just on a tripod and because you can't you have to hide like the whole team you set up a shot and then you all kind of hide in the houses and like I'm just peeking being like oh my god (laughs) because you and especially in India you can't control reality so I remember in the village where we we were filming like you know all the kids would just come and like look at the camera and so literally we had to have like the producer and all these other people like blocking each door or like space just for like the two minutes we needed in order to capture something so it's a really different process of directing because you can't be there you have to disappear how did you adjust to that is that something that came quite innately did you kind of have to teach yourself how to be a vr filmmaker um, I think that's a really interesting question. I think there can be a tendency, especially with something like VR, where it's very techy. And I remember people, you know, like being in these kind of, I really immersed myself into that world. So I'd go to these VR, like meetups and stuff. And there were all of these kind of dudes like talking about these like lens stuff. And I was like, okay. And I think a lot of that is just noise sometimes. It's like, well, what is your story? What, why do you need to have a shot like this? Those are actually more important and harder questions to answer. And once you have that, figuring out how to kind of create that is almost easy because it's like you're following the vision rather than trying to create a vision through all of that noise, if that makes sense. So I think in terms of the technicalities of having to hide and like peeping and seeing if, you know, that can all be sorted because you can figure out a way to connect your camera to your mobile phone you know, if you don't have internet, then you need kind of a router or whatever, like this mobile one, there's ways of doing that, the practicalities of that. Um, but I think what's more important is how do you create a story in a medium where, you know, you don't have shot sizes to guide the viewer. So you almost have to kind of, you know, allow them to have a sense that they have the agency to look everywhere where they can, but really guide them through sounds like noise and you know, set, like playing with light and things like that. 
Mm. And I think, I mean, you've probably answered this and certainly anyone who's seen Notes to My Father probably wouldn't have this accusation, but it comes up quite a lot that VR, you know, is a gimmick or a distraction. Um, How do you respond to that? You know, if that is ever leveled at you or just, you know, at the concept of VR filmmaking in general? I, I can understand, you know, that it can come with any kind of thing, especially when there's this kind of publicity around it is like the new thing or it's it's cool you know or it was when I, you know but it's like what you as a creator do with that medium that's more important to me than how the world sees it I think in terms of longevity of course like there's problems to access you know like how many people haven't a headset where they can actually properly watch it and those are very real valid questions that we need to be asking you know I don't have the answer to that but I think yeah, in terms of being a creator and a storyteller, I, I, I believe there's a lot of potential there. And I know how it's kind of been very nourishing to my own creative practice. And on the topic of access, I know that you just completed a residency at uh, Somerset House earlier this year. Can you tell me a bit about what you were working on and also like the value of having a space like that to kind of just sit and develop your ideas? Oh, God. Somerset House was like a beautiful, beautiful experience. A, because I kind of come from a more filmmaking background. And there you're just with a really eclectic group of artists. So, you know, people that are kind of creating like AR, VR work with quantum physics and, you know, a pop singer and, you know, visual artists, animators, just very different kind of groups of people. And I think as a as a creator, it's really important to be challenged and being in a very expansive environment with people that are not just like you but also very different I think that the the most beautiful thing that came out of that was kind of friendships that I'd formed with other artists that maybe I wouldn't have you know crossed paths with otherwise and I think there's no kind of value to that quantitatively right it's just can't be measured and I think I think it's really important if you and I know I understand that it's also like a privileged thing right I also kind of um, taught for a bit like VR, UCL, which enabled me to kind of have a space to be more reflective in my work and work on independent projects. And that was a very much a choice that I made in order to do that. Yeah, I think as a creative, it's really important. And I think a lot of people may be feeling that now, like, you know, when you can't necessarily just go into production and we're forced in this time to like really think about what's really important to us. Yeah, it would be interesting to see you know, say five down years down the line, like what we're all creating <laughs> now. Yeah, 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 out of this particular moment. And then, I mean, have you have you felt or have you seen opportunities like this or, you know, funding opportunities kind of grow in the past few years? Like, have you felt like the appetite for VR is getting bigger? I think the conversation around it is pretty much kind of almost stagnated, if I'm honest. I think it's kind of caught up in, especially in Europe or England, I think America was obviously for obvious reasons in terms of production and stuff was kind of ahead of the VR thing. And I think it's interesting to, you know, to kind of work in a space or kind of exist also in this new space where everyone's like, well, there's no structures so we can like be more democratic and then immediately see the structures of other kind of industries be replicated in this one. <laughs> So, yeah, I do think it's kind of still very, um, you know, white male dominated, um, very kind of techie. It's almost like the studios because it, it requires more resources. There's very few funding avenues to make independent work. And there's almost seems to be a monopoly because there's not that many people funding it. Who is funding it? Where does their money come from? All of these questions. But I definitely see kind of more 
development programs where you can have like funded development, I think, for VR. And I think that can potentially be quite a positive thing. So speaking of the domination, um, the male domination of both the tech and, to be honest, the cinema kind of industries, what's your experience been like, you know, operating and and navigating those spaces as a woman and as as a woman of colour? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, it has been hard. (laughs) I think it's just like an extra level of, you know, like I can speak like very kind of mindfully in this moment of we're all really exhausted right but then to have to navigate things you know specifically a woman of color I guess is kind of extra exhaustion because it's like there's already kind of a very colonial kind of hierarchy so even if I have a you know a relationship with a a story that you know is somebody else of color or or whatever and then you have a lot of kind of white male and female kind of execs kind of being like, well, this is a great story. And how, you know, it feels like very extractive at times of like, yes, you need my emotional labor and that of the person I'm making a film about. But how are we benefiting from that structure (laughs) in that way? So it feels very top down, reliant on our stories, but still very extractive. And I think when that happens, you constantly have to kind of figure out ways to protect yourself. And that's energy that you could be spending creatively it's a distraction really and I think because I'm very aware of it it's almost become like a a normalized state of anxiety which is not healthy at all but there's also a, 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 a huge belief I guess my vision or why I'm making films you know like I think not only because our stories haven't been told in the way but I find that it's almost like because I've I've almost been quite limited in how I've seen myself because of the information that I'm being told of how I am. Undoing that is a hugely expansive, transformative journey for myself as a creator, right? Even when I'm writing, I'm like, okay, well, this is what the wet white gaze would expect of me. And I've internalized that. No, Jay, like, what is an alternative? And because you haven't been given that alternative, it's like, well, what could it be? But that's also a very exciting journey for me to go on and so I think I see creativity like beyond the practicalities of this industry which is tiring on a much more holistic sense now of something far deeper and far bigger than me Um, and that's what guides me. And is that what you do to overcome those more anxious moments and kind of restore a sense of calm or confidence in what you're doing? Do you like to like immerse yourself in a creative project or is there something else that you found that kind of centers yourself? Uh, you know, like during lockdown, I think I, um, it's weird because all my friends that don't do creative in- things, they're like, oh, you're so lucky to have like a creative pursuit because everyone was becoming more creative to deal with this angst. And when that's your job, you're like, oh, yeah, creativity is meant to be healing, <laughs> soothing. It's not this, you know, angsty thing. And so I was like, okay, well, maybe like film feels too close for me to get that release what else is creative? And I think as a creative, we all just look at everything in creative ways, right? I can't stop looking, you know, everything feels like a scene and it's really bad. It shouldn't. (laughs) But cooking, like it's just, I think A, because we spoke about this earlier of like how, you know, it can become quite emotionally exhausting when you're immersing yourself in difficult subjects. A, like just cooking healthy meals and being able to sustain yourself is a very beautiful thing to be able to do. It's small but and simple, but actually quite radical if you do it consistently. <laughs> and the focus it requires, I find as well, like also just like the measurements and that sense of like you really have to pay attention, I think really takes me out of whatever I'm thinking about. 
Yeah. Just even like chopping an onion. I know it sounds really mundane, but it's so mindful. And you're giving, you know, it's kind of like I'm taking care of myself or taking care of loved ones. I, I think about it in a really creative way. Even if I'm making a salad, it's probably like really geeky, but like it's like textures and colors. It's like painting on a canvas, <laughs> you know, marinating like fish or whatever, like all of the spices. It's like, things like marinating in your head I don't know like but I think cooking is a very creative pursuit for me absolutely I'm on board with that and then thinking about kind of an audience for VR and and where do your films go you know often they're, they're commissioned as you say maybe by like NGOs or kind of those kind of organizational bodies does it change how you make a film thinking about you know who's gonna see it you know because at the moment I would say it's probably not a mainstream audience is is there the hope for that in the future kind of what's your take on that yeah, no, that's an interesting point because I feel like I'm at a stage where um, a lot of those uh, opportunities are now being presented to me and I'm working in that realm. But there's always this kind of, it can be a misaligned thing of A, values as a creator, but also in terms of protecting the people you're making films about, even if they're in fiction, right? Of having a mainstream audience, I'm, I, I, I would love to have a mainstream audience. I just feel that sometimes what is considered good for a mainstream audience is perhaps not something that I'm always comfortable with because it would mean that I would have to jeopardize certain things, right? And so it's that of like, yes, lots of people can see this project now, but does that help like the impact part? Does that protect the gaze of or all the layers of complexity that need to be shown in order to honor the person I'm making a film about? And sometimes those two things can't match. And a mixed strategy, I think, for anything is always a bad idea, especially in directing. Like if you've got a mixed directing style where it's just a bit of everything, it's like, personally, I think it's like, you know, just be brave and go your way. Um, so I don't have the answer to that, really. I, I'm, that's something that I'm really in the trenches of at the moment as we speak. <laughs> what are your ambitions as a filmmaker moving forward? Is it to continue working in this space and kind of pluming the depths of it or? would you ever come back to traditional cinema if you felt that the story and the way of telling that story you know it suited what you wanted to say yeah no of course like I think I'm I, I don't consider myself a VR filmmaker I just consider myself as a creator so at the moment I'm, I'm you know working on, on a fiction film which is a very personal story um, and a, a documentary both features so not to do with VR but VR is very much in the way that I write and create those pr projects yeah I don't I don't see borders in that way like I just to create what you need to create and then what's been the process of kind of moving up to writing a feature you know has that felt like uh, a good and like easy step or again has it been kind of difficult to expand that universe of writing I think actually going into VR gave me confidence to be able to do it I don't think I probably would have made that jump if I hadn't I think my, my films like even like my doc films are very much hybrid so it's like is it you know, I've had like critics in the past being like, great film, but was it documentary or fiction? Like, because I, I like that tension. Yeah, I think because it's a personal story. And I think for a long time, I'm like, okay, well, if I tell other people's stories, you know, you're, you can use your kind of, there's an osmosis of your personal world into that other world, you know, and, and I think it took me a long time to realize that kind of my stories also are kind of worthy of, of, of filmmaking or you know being shown in in a film kind of medium um so it's hard to be writing I think is the most difficult and beautiful thing I've done because you really have to write into that doubt constantly 
but it's hard to be honest. And so my goal right now is to be as honest as I can be. I think, you know, today is Friday and I could set, be like, okay, I was really honest. And then you evolve as a person. And then next Thursday, I was like, okay, well, you're not, you know, now you have some more information about yourself. You, maybe that honesty is always evolving. You know, it's not static. Yeah, that's so true. Actually, you can kind of think that you're being honest in the moment. And then only later, it's like revealed to yourself that actually maybe you're also deceiving yourself. What have you felt uh, is the biggest learning curve of your career, if you can distill it? I think it's just knowing why you're making a film or a project. I think that's, um, you know, a very good friend of mine um, gave me that when I was doing that that VR project notes, actually of like you had so many kind of different people and voices telling you what you should do. But I think a director who's able to maintain their vision, not in a bullish way, but kind of just, you know, wade through all of it and remain intact with their soul intact is one that, that is potentially quite successful in a, you know, in a, whatever way you want to see that success, I guess. And then finally, what is a film that you've seen recently, it can be short or feature length from a woman director, that you think is a bit of a hidden gem that you wish more people had seen? I think Atlantic. I think because I was like, watching that and I didn't see all of I felt all the layers that I thought I understood and then I had to read more about it and then I rewatched it and then it was kind of one of those things that really takes time to kind of resonate in different parts of your body and so it was this really kind of yeah tactile experience um, almost like watching an immersive piece of content <laughs> but just on your screen Joisha, thank you so much. This has been such a lovely conversation. I've felt quite exhausted this week because of the election. and I, I feel newly uh, renewed. So thank you very much. Oh, good. <laughs> thank you. Thank you for downloading this episode of Best Girl Grip. You can find all my previous episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and Acast. You can watch Atlantique's Matty Diop's film that Joisha recommended on Netflix. I'll be back next Tuesday with a brand new episode. Until then, have a lovely week. Mm-hmm.